The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Welcome to today's episode of Building Elite Sales Teams. Today, we are joined by Joe McNeil, Chief Revenue Officer of Influ2, and we'll discuss the importance of career development to build an elite team. It's an important topic, and Joe has a great perspective to share. Joe combines an optimism for client service delivery, employee empowerment, and robust revenue operations to position organizations to scale and grow. Whether overseeing commercial teams, accelerating profitability by boosting conversion rates and deal size, or increasing year-over-year revenue, Joe has a career of experience with skyrocketing and scalable business growth. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add in terms of your experience and what you guys do at Influ2? That was pretty comprehensive. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Lucas. Joe, can you start off by sharing with us the, the importance of developing and progressing the careers of your existing team and the importance that plays in building an elite team? Yeah, so I think it's dramatically important for the types of companies I've worked for, and that's scaling startups, right? If you work for a tier one SaaS business like a Salesforce or an SAP or a Datadog or something, like you can go out and headhunt really good talent because you have a ton of resources. But hiring in general is just imperfect, right? It's an imperfect science. Even when you are amazing at it, you're dealing with people and people are tough at times. I started my career in staffing, so I understand that like it's an imperfect science. So development is important because A, going out and hiring folks is very resource intensive. B, hiring top performing AEs is nearly impossible for rapid growth startup. Maybe it's a little easier now with the market the way it is and there's more folks than there are jobs, but it's hard to sift through it and see it's just expensive. And we don't, us in sales and with growing companies, we don't have a buffer. Like you're as strong as your weakest link on your team. You don't have a situation where you can throw a lot of mud at the wall and hope it sticks. Like you need everybody pulling the rope and everybody performing. And if you have a few people that are behind, then typically you're behind. So to me, like the easiest way to create top performers on your sales team is to hire them early and then develop them. And early mean doesn't mean right out of college. It could be someone changing careers, right? It could be someone halfway through their career. Maybe they were a teacher and they wanted to move into sales. That's early in their, in whatever career path they're joining because you can train them and, and you can get real world experience as to how they perform and you can throttle their income that way. If we walk through this progressively, so when you're hiring someone into an entry-level role, maybe they're earlier in their career, maybe they're doing a career change, what are the things that you're looking for that suggest they're going to progress and become one of your A players in, in a non-entry-level role down the road? Let's just talk about hiring SDRs. I think some people are hiring SDRs that maybe they want to be top-performing AAEs. And ideally, that's the case. 
But I think if you hire really good folks coming into the SDR role, like they can be top performers in a number of different disciplines, right? Like we had SDRs go into recruiting, go into marketing, go into finance. So for me, I, I've always believed in uh, the Warren Buffett quote, right? Hire for intelligence, ed- energy, and integrity. I yeah. think like you hire smart people with energy that are good humans and you'll be in good shape. One thing I'll add to that is, and, and I think you covered it with the energy and integrity, but I always, I always encourage companies that are thinking about this issue to make sure that they're not just screening for intelligence, but also screening for effectiveness. Because there are a lot of people out there who are very intelligent, let's call it book smart, but aren't within the context of a corporation, they might not be effective at getting things done. And so you need the people who are going to be smart and effective, the go-getters with the energy and integrity that you're talking about. Yeah, of course. Now they're in your sales organization. And what are the things that you're doing to help them progress and do the career development, be able to move along into other types of roles? Yeah. So the culture I always communicate that I'm trying to create at any organization I'm leading is, and I stole this from a former CEO, but it's called a collaborative meritocracy where I don't want people in their lane. I want people brainstorming at where we can improve anything. And if you want to foster an environment of brainstorming, you need to have everybody understand that most ideas suck. Like most brainstorm ideas suck. And that's great. You get in these environments where people are afraid to speak up because they're afraid their idea sucks. Your idea probably sucks. But the problem is if everybody's comfortable verbalizing ideas a lot, you'll get good ones every now and then. And I think some people get defensive if it's like, hey, why do we do it this way? Like, why don't we do it this way? It's there are no sacred cows. And I think especially in go-to-market strategy with scaling SaaS companies. I think too many people are looking for, oh, we're going to find this revolutionary strategy or thing we do that moves us dramatically forward. And that's not really it. Usually it's very, you're clawing for incremental gains. You're clawing for inches. And usually efficiency is accumulating a lot of those small incremental gains over time. And you need to empower your whole staff to to speak up. Like I always say, if I have to be the smartest person in the room, we're screwed right? Like we need everybody's ideas and we're going to go forward with the best idea and you need to not be afraid to be wrong and you need to be not be afraid to screw up. Like for the most part, if you operate in good faith, there's nothing that you're going to break that we can't fix. We encourage mistakes, if, especially in a startup environment. If you're a leader or employee and you're not failing at some things, you're not making mistakes, you're not doing enough stuff and you're not trying hard enough. You see that people come from really big organizations and they struggle with that. Because like they, they need this order of operations and all this stuff and they're afraid to, to make a mistake and to slip. But you just need to, you need to go out there. You need to put a lot of thought into something. You, you need to have a reason why you think it's a good idea. You need to execute it. Then you need to reflect and say, you know what? I thought it was going to work with this way. It didn't. It went sideways on me. This is why I think it went sideways and this is what I'm going to do about it. So for me, I think a lot of growth happens just with how you foster your culture. If if you have people that have too much ego to speak up when they make a mistake and laugh about it, if your culture is too tight where you say, hey, don't worry about what this group is doing. You just stay in your lane and worry about this. And this is the way it is because we, you're just starting and we only know this. Like You want people to scrutinize your model because if it can't stand up to the scrutiny, maybe it shouldn't be the model. Yeah, I really like that. I like the point you made about small incremental gains. You're not going to come in and have one idea that doubles or triples the business, but it gets 3% better. It gets 4% better. That accumulates over time. There's something really big when you play, when you're constantly making small changes and you play that out over a number of years. The difference is much bigger than we expect. I know that the best practices around brainstorming 
are that when you're in brainstorming mode, don't be self-critical of your idea of your own ideas and don't be critical of other people's ideas. Let the ideas flow. And that's usually how you get to the good ideas. Like you said, through lots of bad ideas. That's something that I've always struggled with, whether it's my idea or someone else's idea. I can be like too quick to point out why this won't work or that won't work. Do you have any advice for how to turn off that part of your brain temporarily and let the ideas fly? Self-awareness is key because I'm I'm a skeptic by nature and I'm not a great idea guy. I'm better at taking someone else's idea and making it better, like refining it. Yeah. So at, at my last company, I had a, a partner in crime who was more of, he's more of a visionary guy, right? Like he, he was a big thinker and we would just sit down while we were having our coffee every, like probably three times a week, every morning. And he would spitball ideas and I would spitball ideas and I would tell him why I, his ideas were bad. And he would tell me why my ideas were bad. And like a lot of times it wasn't, we wouldn't even know whose idea it was at the end of the day. It was like an accumulation of just thoughts where we were crafting this and crafting that. And then we'd just try something. So I think as long as you have, you're self-aware of what it is, and as long as everyone there knows what the process looks like, then I think it's okay. But yeah, <clears throat> I'm aware of the fact that I tend to think of why things won't work. And he was someone that would think of the why things would work. And it actually worked really well for us to work together because it was a good mix. So I think... Part of it's having the right mix of personalities. And the other part is just understanding that there's no perfect idea. There's no perfect strategy. There's trade-offs to everything. Yeah. So you just you look at your current state and what how it operates, what the good is and what the trade-offs are. And then you look at maybe the new idea and what you think the good is and what the trade-offs are there. And then you, you measure them against each other. That's great. One of the things I heard in there too is... It's not necessarily, if you have the right mix of personalities, it's not necessarily about turning off the critical part of your brain. It's about being in an environment where it's okay to be critical and keep sharing ideas and keep building ideas. It's okay to criticize the ideas without the person feeling like they're being criticized. It's our responsibility to share a lot of the bad ideas we've had too. So people know, hey, let's just let it fly because this is how we're going to move forward. So from that standpoint, yeah, I think it does take a little practice though, especially when you're earlier to like not get emotionally attached to an idea if you put a lot of thought into it and not take it personally if someone's what about this because honestly the process of validating an idea is pulling it through the lens of criticism some of our best ideas we beat up pretty hard early and then as we beat them up it just works its way through and, and survives getting back to career progression what are some of the best practices you've found in terms of the formal steps for considering whether someone can be promoted, what process they go through to be promoted. Are there things that are things in particular that you think are effective for putting that structure in place? There's not like a one size fits all for every organization. So I think you really need to, to deep dive your organization. And if I'm looking at the sales organization specifically, the sales organization to look at, okay, how are we going to make this work? If you have like very complicated selling motion, then putting someone as a solo solo seller into that role straight from an SDR role is probably not the move. So you, you need to give people more responsibility, but not set them up to fail. We've done things in, in complicated selling motions where we've had them be a junior AE under a senior AE for a year and basically support some of the smaller pieces of the bigger complexities of the deal for a year and take on more and more. So I think as sometimes people think of career development as like this, I'm an SDR and then I'm an AE and then I'm a manager. And it's like these big jumps. I think if, if you can start to layer on more responsibility in a more deliberate way, in a more intentional way, it tends to work better. 
couple questions that come out of that. I guess this is maybe the, the least important one, but uh, probably something that pops into other people's minds too. If you're doing that type of thing where someone's moving from an SDR to a junior AE, not necessarily the specifics, but from a big picture, how do you think of compensation for that person and incentive compensation in particular? Yeah. So what we did was we had a AE that was a senior AE that was doing great on a really big territory. And typically what happens when you're growing is you split off a piece of that territory and you throw another AE in there, right? And so you have the conversation with the AE and you say, typically we'd split your territory, but here's another proposal of what we could do. Maybe we increase your quota. You sit on the entire territory, but we give you a junior AE as a resource. That AE gets a percentage of your commission. And then you just do the math. And it's if you can close 25% more revenue this year, having this person supporting you in this way, then it's a win for you. If you don't think you can do that, you want to be a, a solo AE in a smaller territory, then you do it this way. So I think in those cases, this was more of an enterprise motion. There's a lot of work that goes into that on the AE side. We're a growing company, so we didn't have enabled people, this people, these people. The AE had to do a lot of stuff. And if we just sat down and broke down the responsibilities of what this junior AE could support, it was really helpful and it really helped them. And it, it was pretty successful. And a lot of times, the junior AE had it good too, because they got to ride shotgun with one of our one of our top AEs in deals, in cycles, collaborate with them every day. And then they were ready for their own territory once that came up. And is the junior AE an assistant on every deal that the senior AE has, or do they have their own subset booked within that territory? It's a complete shared book. So they're splitting every deal. I think it was 80-20 was the mm. percentage split. And sometimes the senior AE would run by themselves and didn't have the junior help. And some things the junior ran by themselves and didn't have the senior help. Now, hands on. Now, they were yeah. always there to help each other, right? Yeah. And to collaborate. And I'm not saying this is a perfect model, but this worked great in that situation. But I think just being open-minded about different ways that you can do it, that would be beneficial is important. What are examples of what the junior AE would do different than the senior AE? The senior AE was running the big meetings they own the communication with the executive sponsor most of the time, most of the positioning and, and high-level strategy. And the junior AE was doing a lot of follow-up work. They were coordinating with solution consultant, solution architect for the demos. They were coordinating with maybe the champions within the group instead of the executive sponsors and building relationships there. They're helping with assets. They were, it, was, it wasn't always a one-size-fits-all, but they were doing more of the quote-unquote less complicated pieces of the busy work of the deal rather than like the high level structure and strategy. Do you have a time period in mind where a junior AE would run shotgun with the senior AE? Would it be one year and then they'd be ready to be promoted or it just depends? It really depended, depends. There probably is a right answer for that where this is the time period that it would work. But a lot of times the business kind of dictates what's happening too. It's if we have, if we need a new, another solo AE eight months later, and we think this person's the best fit, then maybe that drove it. Sometimes the junior AEs just wanted to be junior AEs. They thought, hey, this I've gotten a look at what being a senior AE is, and I don't want any part of that. That seems stressful and scary and, and complicated, but I like what I'm doing right now. And they would just stay there. So I think that was helpful too. So a lot of it depended on what how the junior AE reacted to the role, if they wanted more or if they were happy where they were at. When you're going from, let's say, to management or leadership, is there another like intermittent step or do you not really think of it in the same model that way? There can be situations where there's team leads, right? I think it's really hard to be a player coach though, personally. I, I agree. Like I don't like player coach roles, period, yeah. typically. Now I think there's situations where a team lead, if the structure 
is put in effectively can work. But for the most part, I think putting someone in a, their first leadership role as a player coach is is not putting them in a great position to succeed, in my opinion. A lot of times it's more of, it's not even like a formal job title. I think my advice to people that want to be in leadership or want to get promoted to leadership is be viewed as a leader before you have the title at all. What does that look like? What are some of the things that where people are, are saying that about one of their colleagues? At its core, your job as a frontline leader, especially your first leadership job, is to empower and support your team, is to make the, help them succeed. So it's, are you a person that people come to for help? That's step one. Be a resource. Be doors open. Be Slack open. Be whatever. Be helping your yeah. team. And that's helping. I talked about incremental gains. A lot of those happen organically within the staff. And I think be the person that's helping broker the communication between the staff where everybody's communicating what they're doing and what's working for them and what the, where the gains are. And just be that glue. Leadership isn't all about one-on-ones and managing Salesforce and managing quota. It's, it's about helping people do yeah. better. And so are you the person, do people come to you for help? I agree. I, I was never like the very best salesperson early on in my career, but I think one of the reasons I, I was able to transition into management was that I, for whatever reason, I was a person that a lot of other people came to for, to talk about their deals and brainstorm on their deals. And, and that was something that in my very first job, people seem to realize early on that I was good at that. I was a good person to go discuss their deals with. And so even though I wasn't the very top salesperson, there was a, I, I was better at helping people succeed than I was at succeeding on my own. A lot of times the people that are the best coaches are the people that whatever they're coaching wasn't easy for them. And they had to be very detailed and very, and work very hard at it. If it's just Michael Jordan might not be a great basketball coach. He just, what do you mean? You just dribble through those people and score that that doesn't always work. So from my sense, like that's it. If you really had to focus on your craft and really had to, to buckle down in whatever it is, you'll probably be pretty good at teaching it. Is there anything else that we haven't covered yet in terms of how you think about successfully enacting this type of culture within your organization? You just can't have any jerks, right? I think Bob Sutton has a book out like the no asshole rule or jerk-free culture. Like you need to create a very jerk-free culture for this to work because if you have anyone that's peacocking around or turning their nose up or, or shaming anybody or, or anything like that it, it's not going to work and then as little ego as possible in the sense that people don't care you don't want to celebrate whose idea is you want to just celebrate winning as a whole you want people who want to win as a whole they don't care who the person is that was right who the person is that was wrong they care about winning it's not an uncommon situation where some of the people who are the t maybe the top seller in the organization or one of the top sellers in the organization maybe turns their nose up a little bit about training or coaching or changes that we're making to our sales process. And they say, hey, I have my way that I do it. When you say no jerks, would you think of that as being one of the jerks? Or how would you think if someone told, came to you with that issue within their sales organization, how would you think about advising them on how to deal with that? The lone wolf, it depends on how they lone wolf. Because they don't have to be going out of their way to help people, but are they answering when people are asking for help? Are they willing to share anything? And I think part of it is on the leadership. It's to sell that person on what's in it for them, for them to bless the team with knowledge. Because we all know SaaS companies as a whole, that's where my experiences is coming from. That's where my DNA is. is there's no such thing as stay the same. It's grow or die. So it's, if you like your role, if you like your situation, you should be interested in the company growing as a whole because that's the only way to keep 
your situation as it is. If you're the only one doing well here, then your role inevitably isn't going to remain the same as it is now. Yeah, I agree. So if our listeners are listening today and they're thinking, hey, I want to do more to make my organization an organization of career development and of of helping each other and more open to bad ideas, to find the good ideas, what are potential mistakes that they should avoid? You need to be somewhat specific in what you're doing. You can't do everything at once. Because if you try to do too many different things, if, if people do get change fatigue too, if you're changing too many things too many times. So it's finding a way to test certain things, finding a way to tinker with certain things in a very non-intrusive way, making it easy is important. And I think the other piece is just like thinking that you as the leader needs to be the smartest person in the room or have all the answers. I think too many leaders think that they need to be judge, jury, and executioner of every idea. Like open source it to the group, talk, have huddles, brainstorm things. And maybe you think something's best, but the rest of the team is very emphatic that something else is going to work. Hey, they're the ones that are probably going to be doing it. So if they believe in an idea, even if you don't think it's the greatest idea, let them play it out. Because if you're going to force your idea on them, they're probably not going to execute it the way that you want them to. So sometimes being willing to let go of the reins a little bit and test something that maybe you don't believe in a ton, but if the staff believes in it, let let them go try it. And you know what? Hopefully you're wrong and hopefully it works. A lot of times too, it'll be like one person who wants to go try something that you think might not work, but it's going to be, it's going to impact one person and it's going to impact a very limited amount of their time. And in that case, it's, it's let them try it and hope that they prove you wrong. A lot of times they will. Yeah. And I just think of what, like I always think of what's the worst that's going to happen. What's the worst thing that'll happen if we try this? This guy's not going to fall. You'll be able to, everybody's got gong now and they got this and they got that. Like you'll be able to vet it out pretty quick. A lot of times the answer to what's the worst that can happen is a lot worse on if we don't do something or if we don't try something than it is if we try this or try that or try something else. I would imagine there are still times where you're like, hey, I need an experienced enterprise seller that I don't have on my bench. And so you're not necessarily saying all of my, am I correct that you're not necessarily saying all of my sales reps are going to be promotions or all of my managers are going to be promotions. You're going to have a mix of insiders and outsiders. Is that correct? Yeah, if you have too many insiders, that can be a problem too, because you have just you get stuck in your own internal thought bubble. Because yeah. like you, you develop most of these folks, or your teams develop most of these folks. So you, they, they came up a certain way, and they view the world somewhat of a certain way. So like mixing in some external blood is always healthy to that. Right. Mixing in some ex- external thought is always healthy. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not binary of like, hey, your whole team should be homegrown. But on the flip side, it's not hey, we need to up-level our sales folks. We need to go hire that entirely externally. I've, I've experienced it many times where it's like, hey, sometimes we just need an outside perspective to become an insider. You can go get an outside perspective from maybe a consultant, but sometimes you need some of those outside perspectives to be in the weeds with you every day. Do you have a rule of thumb for inside promotions versus outside hires? It depends on the situation. I think even in the middle management leadership ranks is really important too, because if you have homegrown talent as leaders, that's great. But bringing in, you're coaching them, but bringing in external leaders is, is super helpful too, because those, the internal promoted leaders and the external leaders tend to be great partners. The internal folks help the external folks with all the internal nuance and all the tribal knowledge that's there. And the external folks help the internal folks. So sometimes you just need a peer to talk to because sometimes it's your leader's going to help coach you help this, but sometimes you just need to complain a little bit. You just need to maybe not complain, but vent, right? You need someone to vent to and someone that gets it and talking to a peer of, man, this is just frustrating me that this and this, and then you just move on. And I think that 
having that peer relationship of external versus internal is, is super helpful a lot of times because they really help feed off of each other in terms of where the others are weak. I would imagine based on what you've told me today that there, that when you're bringing in external people, there are certain values that are like really important in terms of having them fit in with your organization around the ideas of, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take ideas from other people as leaders. We're not know-it-alls. We're going to, we're not going to be jerks. Are, are there any other things that are really important that you're looking for in terms of the cultural behaviors when you're looking at bringing outsiders into a position rather than promoting from inside? I, I let them know that, hey, publicly, maybe when you and I talk, it'll be different, but publicly, anything that good that anything good that happens on your team is going to be, the credit's going to go to the folks on your team. And anything bad that happens on your team, you're going to take ownership of that publicly. Yeah. And that usually weeds out a lot of folks. And I think just having them understand that as a leader, that's how we're going to roll, right? Now, behind closed doors, obviously, I'm going to talk and we're going to talk and you're going to get a lot of credit for the good things your team does because that's a reflection on you. But publicly in Slack, in standups, we're not going to talk about all the great things Lucas, the sales manager, did. In fact, we're probably never going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all the great things your team did. And then when there's mistakes, we're going to share them that, Lucas is going to reflect on, hey, yeah, we screwed this up, we screwed that up, but this is what we're doing about it. We're excited about where we're going. So I think a lot of times that's really it. And you see it in the interview process of how much of their communication is I and how much is we, right? How much do they own and how much do they talk about the team? And it's a little tough because inherently interviews are supposed to be selfish and you're supposed to self-promote a little bit. But you kind of assess that out of like how focused are they on what they did and how much do they talk about their team? Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. Lots of great advice. I really like the way that you shared about creating the culture of being able to share bad ideas and being in an environment where if you share lots of ideas, you're going to find the good ones and you're going to make small incremental gains. Lots of other great stuff here today as well. Where can people find you online? LinkedIn. That's my main area. So Influ2 company website. LinkedIn is Joe McNeil. Come say hi. Come shoot me an invite. Love to chat and meet with people. All right. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.